Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 in this audio. Our context is this. In the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul emphasized all the wonderful blessings and riches that Christians will inherit, their inheritance in Christ. And now in this section, which I've chosen to entitle Salvation by Grace Through Faith, we will once again explore the Christian's inheritance, all the wonderful things he gets when he accepts Christ as his Lord and Savior. So we start with verses 1 and 2 in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul says you were dead. Why were you dead? Because you are wallowing in your trespasses and sins. Trespasses and sins are two ways of saying the same thing, violations of God's moral commands. And because of those violations, you're dead. Now, I have a query here. How do dead men choose Christ? Dead men can't choose anything. They were dead for two reasons. Their federal head, Adam, sinned, and the wages of sin is death. So sin was originally found in the first human Adam, that's where we get the term original sin from, and then from that origin in Adam, the sin passed on down to all other individuals in the human race. So we're dead because of the inherited original sin from Adam, and we're also dead because of our individual sins that we commit, not that Adam committed, but that we committed. So for those two reasons, we die because the wages of sin is death, and we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, we're dead in more than one sense. Legally, we're dead. In fact, unsaved people are walking around under a death sentence. They're dead men walking, waiting to die one heartbeat away from eternal death, separation from God eternally. So we're dead in that sense. Legally, we're unsaved, not right before God. And also, we're morally dead. We are dead to spiritual things because we're sensual. We are very alive to sensual things of this world, but we're dead to spiritual things because we don't have the spirit of Christ. So unsaved people are akin to spiritual zombies. They're dead men walking, as I said. They're walking around just waiting to be finally dead. That's why I like the walking dead. All those zombies walking around, they're dead, but they're not quite dead yet. They're still moving. They have to be put out of their misery with a stake through the brain. And that's what sinners are in this world. They're zombies. They're walking around, think they're alive, but they're not. They're dead they're just not fully dead yet. Now, why are dead people dead in their trespasses and sins? Because they're just living out their nature. Their sin nature, they're sinners and sinners sin. Just like ducks quack and bogs dock, sinners sin. And they reap for themselves death. These trespasses and sins, in verse 2, Paul says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Walked means living a life of. So when the Ephesians were sinners, they did just did not casually sin. They walked in it. They continued in it. It was a continual progressive thing. We walked in it according to the course of this world. This world as opposed to the age to come after Christ's return. In fact, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown points out, that word world there is age. Those words, the word for age, eon, or the Greek equivalent of that, is often translated world in some English translations and age in other English translations. So you kind of have to look and see which way you want to go with it. But here in the course of this world, it could be the course of this age. The point is, is while we're here, when sin still has not been completely obliterated from the world, then that means sinners walk around in the midst of that sin. And we did that. Here's some related scriptures. Galatians 1.4. 
he, who, Jesus, gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father, this evil age we're living in is not going to be the same age when we live in heaven or in the new, the final state. 1 Corinthians 2, 6, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So this age or this world is world, is world, and this is how we put it, but it can also be this age because this age is full of sin. 1 Corinthians 2, 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, the spirit of the age or the spirit of the world. And what is the spirit of the world? Well, people want fame, they want money, they want sex, they're selfish, they want everybody to look up to them, they want security and independence from God, and so forth. Everybody knows what the world is. We haven't received such a spirit. We have received the Holy Spirit from God. 1 Corinthians 3, 18-19, Let no man deceive himself, for if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age... He must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. So Paul talks about this age in verse 18, and he describes this age as the wisdom of this world being foolishness. So age and world are tied together there, and it's foolishness. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. God is wise, the world is, is foolish. So there you have the idea of the world, and that's how the Ephesians formerly walked according to the course of this world, looking after vain philosophy and the wisdom of man. Now, Christians before they're saved, the Ephesians before they were saved, they walked according to the prince of the power of the air. The prince, of course, is the rule of the devil. The NIV, in fact, translates it, the ruler, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, is how the NIV puts it. John 14:30, we read this, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. The ruler of the world, of course, is the devil. Satan, as the NIV Study Bible puts it in John Gill. Now, he's called a prince here. A prince has some authority, but he's still subject to the king. Listen to this quote from Job chapter 1, verse 12. Very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. Everything he, Job, owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. So you see, God put a leash on Satan, let him have some authority within the circumference within the uh, radius of that lease, but beyond that, he could not go because the Lord had authority over him. The prince of the power of the air has authority to create death, disease, and strife. Now, there's an interesting thought here. Here's a theological, theological proposition. The devil is called the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. Does that mean he has authority over Christians? John 12, 31 says, now is the judgment of this world. This world this world that the devil has power over is going to be judged. And he's talking about it at the cross. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. When? When Jesus died on the cross. So that, does that mean that we need to now be subject to the devil living in this world? No, we do not. Because we're in the church and the rule of the world is cast out. Now, he was cast out at the cross. Paul was writing after the cross, and yet he's still causing the prince of the power of the air, so that still leaves him some authority. But it's not ultimate authority. Why is he called the power of the air? Well, here's some options. That's a strange phrase. Here's some options. The NIV Study Bible says that this shows that Satan is not earthbound. The demons can move from one place to another without hiking. In other words, they can move through the air. That is my preferred interpretation of it, because it's, I, I think there's no question about it. Demons move through the air, because you cast them out of people. Where do they go? They don't walk off anywhere. 
They go somewhere through the air to their ne- to the pigs. When Jesus cast out the Galilean demoniac, they went to the pigs. How did they get there? Did they swim? Did they walk? Or did they fly through the air? Prince of the power of the air. John Gill has a kind of a funny option. The devil has power over the air to raise winds. He's the prince of the power of the air. He has power over the air, so he can make it winds blow when he wants to. I think that's a little too imaginative for my taste. John Gill and Adam Clark say demons have their residence in the air, and I think that's probably true, except when they're in when they've possessed a, a body. GotQuestions.org says Prince of the Power of the Air is synonymous with world. They quote that verse from John 12:31 that I've already quoted. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So the ruler of this world, the ruler of the, of the power, the power of the air, is the same as the ruler of this world. So air and world are equated. GotQuestions.org also quotes Ephesians 2:2 to that end. In which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. So the ruler of the power of the air is ruling unbelievers who are walking in the ways of the world. So there you have the ruler, the, the power of the air, identified with the world. So that's a good idea, too. That's a possible idea. And whether that's what the phrase actually means, we do know that the world, the flesh, and the devil are intimately tied together and leave out flesh there. The world and the devil... They're tied together. You find one, you'll find the other. You find worldliness, you'll find the devil. You'll find the devil, you're going to find worldliness. I should point out here that the devil is the ruler of the world, non-Christians, but he does not have authority over the church. I implied that. I didn't state it explicitly, and I need to state it explicitly here. Verse 2, Paul says this. Well, let me read it all again. And let me. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So let's take up the last part of, the, of, the, of verse 2 here. Of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Well, what, son, what spirit is working in the sons of disobedience? Well, Jameson Fawcett Brown suggests Satan. Well, but Satan is localized. He can't be in every unbeliever at once. How about the demons? Jameson Foster Brown suggests that is the next option. It's the demons of the spirit of the demon spirits that is now work that are now working in the sons of disobedience. Of the spirit means of the demonic powers that are working in the sons of disobedience. Well, that's nice. There's one little problem. It says of the power that is working in the sons of disobedience. It's singular. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience is Singular, but you could say, well, it's the devil that's working, and the way he works is through his demons. But at any rate, you see disobedience to God tied up with demonic activity, and all of that's tied up with death, trespass, and sin. This disobedience is in the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Working is a present continuous tense, so Satan is not only working in the air, whatever that means, he's working in the hearts of sinners. In the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience is just a Hebrewism, the way you say disobedient people. Like Bartimaeus was the son of encouragement. He was an encouraging person. Sons of disobedient means disobedient people. So if you have a non-believer, before he got saved in Ephesus, Satan was his father and disobedience was his mother. <laughs> the sons of disobedience. Satan was his father. How do we know Satan is the father of these people? Matthew 13:38 says this, And the field is the world, and it is for the good seed... These are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. So there you go. Sons of the devil are 
are non-believers. John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Well, there, the devil is called the father of the Pharisees. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning, John continues in chapter 8, verse 44, and does not stand to the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Like father, like sons, like the devil, like non-Christians who are the devil's sons, they lie they lie to themselves and they lie to each other. These verses that show that there are sons of the disobedient, those who don't follow Christ, shows that it is wrong to call God the father of all, like liberals love to do. Without distinction, God's the father of Paul Pot, Xi Jinping, Adolf Hitler, no difference. Well, that's not true, because our father is not the devil. Our father is God the father, and the world's father is the devil. So therefore... We are not all the sons of God in the same sense. Now, if you want to talk about father meaning in the sense of creation, God is the father of all because he created us all. Well, that's fine. You can do that. But not actually in, theologically speaking, we are not of the same offspring as of the devil. We are of the offspring of God. The devil and non-Christians have as their father the devil. Let's go now to verses 3 and 4 of Ephesians 2. Paul says this, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, and we break off in the middle of a sentence, the whole chapter is one sentence we have to break off here and there. He says in verse 3, among them we too, who's the we? Well, it could be the Jews and the Gentiles, according to NIV Study Bible, John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Among them, we too, Jews and Gentiles, or we too could mean the Ephesians and Paul individually. That's my idea. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. But at any rate, he's talking about non-Christians living in the lust of their flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh. Well, what is flesh? Well, first of all, let's talk about the horrible translation that the NIV uses, the sinful nature. That is not a good translation. The word is sarx. It means flesh. It does not mean sinful nature. For one thing, one reason why it's a bad translation is Christians can walk in the flesh and they don't have a sinful nature because they have a new nature, a new man, a new creation. But they can walk in the flesh. So when you say indulging the desires of the sinful nature, it, it, it makes it sound like Christians are like non-Christians, like there's no big difference between the two. Let me give you an example of how Christians can live according to the flesh. Romans 8.13, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, the, which is the flesh, you will live. So if you're Christians and you're putting to death the deeds of your flesh, the deeds of your body, that means you've got flesh to deal with even though you're a Christian. And here Paul says there's a, there was something, he's talking about the children of wrath who are indulging the deeds of their flesh. So, it's not a good translation. Christians do not have a sinful nature. Of course not. They're new creations. Galatians 6.15, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's the new nature. And talking about Christians and talking about non-Christians, we see that non-Christians had a sinful nature until it had been crucified with uh, with Christ and became a new nature. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
What part of crucified don't we understand? Crucified means it's over. So therefore, we have a new nature. We do not have a sinful nature. And so, and not only that, in the, where is it? Is it Romans 7? Somewhere in the New Testament where it is said that Christians, uh, yes, Romans 7, walking in the flesh, the NIV says sinful nature. Almost every other translation that translates that Greek word, sarx, it uses flesh. There was a professor at Mid-American Seminary in Memphis. I had a friend who was going to seminary there, and he had a professor that was on the NIV translating committee, and he told the class that he couldn't sleep the night after they took a vote on how to translate that word, sarx, and they voted to vote it at, to, to translate it as sinful nature, and he finally gave in to his other people on the committee who didn't want who wanted to translate it that way and he gave in and he voted okay he went along with it and he said he couldn't sleep at night because he felt so guilty about that translation as well he should so we're not going to call it and if you got the niv forget it it's desires of the fa- indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind flesh is a metaphor because sin is conceived in the human spirit and that sin is acted out through the body so the sin that is spiritually conceived conceived is called flesh even though flesh is sin is an is an immaterial thing it's as i could say spiritually conceived is conceived in your in your soul which is not a physical thing but nonetheless is called flesh why because you have to use the flesh to carry out the desires of your mind it does not mean that the body is evil it it's only that the body does evil things when directed to by the human soul that's what flesh is and the metaphor can be confusing it makes sense when you think about it but Unfortunately, a lot of Christians through the millennia have taken that idea of flesh and turned it into asceticism and said that the human, the 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 pink and black and brown stuff that wraps around our bones is something evil about it. No, it's not. God created it. It's perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with it. But when that pink and brown and yellow stuff around your bones does something evil, like steal something, well, then it's it is evil. But it's not the physical thing that's evil. It's the spiritual thought of the 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 thought of your soul that causes you to do the evil thing that's what's evil all right so that's what we were doing indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind now this is a good place to use augustine's three-part taxonomy of spiritual states that we can be in the first state is we can be not bored again an unbeliever and we and when we're non-believer we live in the flesh that means we're not able not to sin you can say all you want i'm not going to sin i'm not going to have a bad thoughts and you will you're you're under the power of sin you're the slave of sin or you could be a born-again christian and when you're a born-again christian you're able not to sin you can beat lust of the flesh you can mortify lust of the flesh you can live a life that which you now don't live in the flesh but live by the faith of the son of god you can do that you can not sin but you can also sin too you can live in the flesh as I, as I just pointed out to you because you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh which means you you can either put them to death or you can or you can go ahead and sin so you're able not to sin but you, but but it doesn't necessarily mean that you do that you can either walk in the spirit by building up your new man building up the new creation or the new man the christian can walk in the spirit by what she's been walking the flesh by yielding to the flesh so that's the second state we can be in. The third state is we can be a glorified Christian when we die and go to heaven. There we're free from all temptations of the flesh, and we're not able to sin because there ain't going to be any sin in heaven. So let me summarize that. We can we can be unborn again, 
a pagan, a non-believer, we're not able not to sin. We can become born again, then we are able not to sin. Or we can be a glorified Christian, in which case we're not able to sin. Now, in this same phrase, Paul says, we were indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. What is nature? Nature is your essence, your substance, to use philosophical terms. Your nature, your essence, who you truly are. So before conversion, you were children of wrath, and after conversion, you were new men in Christ. Your essence, your nature, after you're born again, is not a sinner. You are not a sinner. You are a saint. I love to ask people, are you a sinner or are you a saint? And watch people raise their hands when they say they're a sinner because they've been brainwashed to think that. The Bible never says that you're a sinner. I know there's some controverted passages, which I can explain very easily to say, no, that's not, Paul does not mean to say you're a saint. He doesn't say, saints all the, to the saints in Corinth. Excuse me, he doesn't say to all the sinners in Corinth. He says to all the saints. He calls them saints over and over again. Holy, beloved. He doesn't call people sinners. He says, we were children of nature. This is before you were saved. The NIV has objects of wrath. Children of wrath really means objects of wrath. The children of children of something is a Hebrewism. That's the way the Hebrews wanted to describe something. If you were children of wrath, that means you were a child that was characterized by wrath. Now, what does that wrath mean? It either means that sinners are going to show you wrath. Sinners show wrath to one another. John Gill has that idea. But no, I think it means that it means that before they were saved, they were going to receive the wrath of God. Just like the rest means like the rest of sinful mankind, besides we all, besides we Jews and we Gentiles that were, well, you know, because he says the rest, that's why it's hard for me to think that even though all the commentators say that we refers to we Jews and we Gentiles, but then who are the rest? Because Jews and Gentiles covers the whole human race. So even as the rest, that's why it makes me think he's talking about we all, meaning we Ephesians, all you Ephesians and me too, Paul, and then all the rest of the world, we, they were living in the flesh too before they got saved. Let's talk about wrath falling on non-believers. Romans 1, 18 through 19, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is on you before you are saved. Romans 2, 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Oh, that's a nice verse that the typical wussy-pussy evangelical preacher who's worried about keeping his pulpit filled so he can meet his mortgage payment and his inflated salary. And never going to, he's not going to talk about this, is he? The wrath of God. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. Romans 9, 20, by the way, not all pastors are like that. There's a lot of pastors aren't getting paid anything. In fact, most pastors now are having trouble making ends meet. That's why they're going by vo- vo- vocational, so I don't want to be overly broad there. But you, you see my point is you, this is not going to make you popular talking like this, but it's the truth. It's Scripture. You're storing up wrath for yourself. And, of course, you wouldn't be speaking to Christians this way because the wrath isn't on Christians. So I need to be careful there. This, is, this would be a good evangelistic sermon. Let's put it this way. Romans 9.22, but what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's some strong language there. It's not, you know, we were enemies of God and he was angry with us because of our sin. It's clearly scriptural, and I'm, but it's just not talked about very much in today's vanilla evangelist, evang, uh, evangelicalism. It's just not mentioned very much. And, of course, children of God are not destined for wrath. Is the, What is it? One of the Thessalonian letters, Paul said that. We are not destined for wrath as Christians, but as non-Christians, we were. Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I've got to go back and pick up the subject of that made. Verse 4, but God, dot, 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 verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, God raised you from the dead, you believers. First question, if we were dead in our transgressions, as verse 5 says, how can dead people choose to follow Christ? Now, this is an interesting theological problem, and I've spent a lot of time coming up with a short little taxonomy of positions here. The Pelagian view, which is heretical even by the, on the Catholic standard, says man on his own could achieve salvation without God. In other words, he wasn't really dead. Here's an analogy. you got a conscious man. He's wide awake. He's in a pit and needs to get out. How can he get out? He just climbs out. Salvation on his own. Qu question to ask. Can dead men climb out of a pit? No. So the Pelagian theory is wrong. Then there's semi-Pelagianism, which was around during Augustine's day. Well, so was Pelagianism for that matter. Semi-Pelagianism. Man is free to choose God even before God reached out to help man. I think this is probably your Catholic position even today. Man was free to choose God, and after man chose God, this and he's free even before God reached out to help man, even before God did anything, man was free. He was born that way, in other words, free to choose. And after man had chosen God, God had to cooperate with man in order for man to obtain salvation. Now, the percentage of contribution of effort that the man had to make and God had to make would differ between teachers, but at some point there's a joint effort there. Here's an analogy. you got a conscious man in a pit. He throws a rope up to the man at the top on his own motion now. The man at the top just standing there. The man in the pit throws the rope up and says, will you help me get out? And so the man at the top will pull, the man in the pit will climb, and they both together work their way out. Synergism, if you will. They'll work together out and get out of the pit question can a dead man climb out of a pit even if he has help uh no he cannot so paul here when he says you were dead your transgressions semi-pelagianism shows that semi-pelagianism cannot be true then there's armenianism this is from jacob arminius what is that 17th century i think i remember up in holland there started Ar armenianism he said man was free to choose god just like the semi-pelagians but after he chose god god did all the salvation Here's the analogy. you got a conscious man in the pit. He asks the man at the top to throw him the rope. The man in the pit decides to grab the rope, and then the man at the top pulls the man in the pit out. The man in the pit lies passive as the man on the top hoist. That's the Arminian position. In other words, we can't get out, but we have, we're free to ask God to get us out, but one, but God's got to do all the, all the pulling out of the pit. All the saving has got to come on God's motion. But you are conscious, you are able, because you were born that way with the, with the freedom to choose God. And I have a question to ask the Arminians. Well, can a dead man decide to grab a rope? Paul says we're dead in our transgressions and sins. Here's the fourth position, Wesleyism. This is from John, the famous John Wesley. He says that man is not free to choose God before Jesus died. Thus, Wesley disagreed with the Arminians, the semi-Pelagians, and the Pelagians. Man is not free. He wasn't born that way free to choose God. He was born as a sinner. Wesley believed in original sin, and original sin destroyed our ability to choose. But when Jesus died on the cross, he gave all men the power to choose and put all men back in the same position that the Arminians, semi-Pelagians, and Pelagians believed that man had when he was born. So Wesley says you're not free to choose when you're born, but you're free to choose after died on, Jesus died on the cross because Jesus gave everybody so-called prevenient grace. And then once man chose, God did 100% of the work in getting you out of your pit. 
So here's the analogy. You've got a man who's unconscious at the bottom of the pit because he's dead in his sins. Then the man at the top climbs down, gives mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to the guy at the bottom of the pit. The man in the pit awakens, and then he decides to grab the rope. The man at the top then pulls the man in the pit out. I have a question for Wesley, the Wesleyans. Can a dead man decide to grab a rope? Another question, where in the Bible is there anything about prevenient grace? That is totally made up out of thin air. Nobody saw it to John Wesley, and he saw it when he was having a fantasy or a dream or something. It's not in the Bible. Now we go to the fifth position, which I can give you a heads up, is the correct position. This is Augustinianism. Man is not free to choose God, just as Wesley said. We are not born with the freedom to choose God because we're dead in our sins. But even after Jesus died, we're not free to choose God because nowhere does it say that Jesus gave us the ability to choose God after he died on the cross. Augustinianism says that man contributed nothing to his salvation. All he did was to agree to accept what God had 100% done for him. So God first regenerates the dead sinner just before his conversion. The dead sinner then responds in faith. So regeneration comes before faith before conversion, not afterwards. So here's an analogy. The man at the top climbs down into the pit and gives mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to the unconscious man, or to the dead man, I should say. The man in the pit revive, revives. He does not resist rescue. The man at the top puts the man in the pit on the stretcher and pulls him out, and the man in the pit smiles at his good fortune. It's all God that saves people, according to the Augustinians. Now, it is true that man does. He's not as the Arminians often unjustly allege, that the Augustinians believe that the man is saved against his will. No, he's just dead. Uh, and he's dead, and he gets revived, and then when he wakes up, he says, oh, yes, thank you so much. I accept the salvation. I ain't going to jump back down in the pit. It doesn't mean that your free will is violated. Don't worry, my analogy was anybody's free will violated. It means you just you didn't save yourself. God saved you completely. All right, that's enough for, for, for theology for today. I love that verse, though. I just say, when, uh, uh, how can dead men choose? When, if you ever run into Armenians as people, that's the first question to ask. How can dead men choose? He, God, made us alive. He was the one that did the making alive, the resurrection from the dead. And he did it with Christ. And again, with Christ, it's just like saying in Christ or in union with Christ. By, by putting us in union with Christ, that means we're alive because Jesus was alive. He resurrected from the dead. So when he resurrected from the dead, we who are identified with Christ, we resurrected from the dead and we live forever, eternally. And then he says, by grace we have been saved. We don't become holy so that we became, become saved. It's rather we become saved that we become holy because it is by grace. We were nasty, rotten, filthy, stinking, transgressing sinners. And then God, by his grace, by his unmerited favor, he reached down and said, okay, I'm going to save you. But you were lying down there in, in, on a stretcher. Excuse me, not on a stretcher. You were lying down there at the bottom of a pit, dead as you could be. And I breathe life in you because I want you in my kingdom as my elect. And I'm saving you right now. Not because you've done anything, because you're a dead man. You can't do anything. You can't do anything good worthy of your salvation. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. Paul says this referring to God in verse 4, and then in verse 6 he says, and raised us up with him. God raised us up with him. He resurrected us. Now, of course, he's not talking about physical resurrection. That hasn't happened yet. When Paul's writing, he's talking about our spiritual resurrection. The past tense makes it in the in Paul's past. And so when Christ died and came up from the cross, God raised us up with him, of course, when we, when we believe in him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now the heavenly places occurs five times in Ephesians, but not in other scriptures 
Here's a question I have. Do we have to die to get the blessings which are in the heavenly places, or do we have the blessings now in this veil of tears when we need them so much? No, we have them now. So spiritually, our position is we are at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, because that's where Jesus is, and we're with Jesus, and where the head is, the body is. So that's where we are. The Scripture never says, actually, that we we are seated at the right hand of God. At least I read that in a commentator somewhere. I don't have it in front of me right now, but... But even if it doesn't directly say that, it says that Jesus is there, and it says we are in Jesus. So that means we are at the right hand of God. The place of position, power, authority, and honor, that is how much God cares for you as a Christian. Verse 7, so that in ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Yeah, that's a pretty privileged situation to be sitting up there at the right hand of God the Father with Jesus. So he might show the surpassing riches. That means out of the ordinary riches. That means incredible spiritual riches. Riches of what? What kind of riches? His grace, his mercy, unmerited favor toward us. Now, Paul says that in the ages of the come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. There's that ambiguous phrase, ages to come. It's all You always have to sort of interpret it according to the context. It could mean the eternal state after time is ended, according to the NIV, to the NIV Study Bible and John Gill. Or, as John Gill and Adam Clark say, it could refer to the times of human history after Paul had died in the ages to come after I'm now writing. Here's the quote from John Gill, the ages following to the end of time in distinction from the ages that were past. I tend to like that translation, that interpretation better by John Gill because we get a lot of his grace right now on this earth before we even get to heaven. We'll get more when we get to heaven, but we get some now. I don't believe in I believe in enjoying I, I believe in enjoying the down payment that God has given us on this earth. I enjoy thinking about the riches of his grace that I've had now on this earth. In ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's a very kind God. If you think if, if your picture of God is only a God of wrath, he is a God of wrath because you're children of wrath before you get saved. But once you get saved, his visage changes, if you will, and he becomes kind and not wrathful. Toward us in union with Christ Jesus. In Say in union with, and it means more. Because we are completely united with Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, when we think of saved, we almost always think of that point in time when we got justified, when we walked down the sawdust aisle, when we said the sinner's prayer, and all that kind of thing. But actually, salvation is a process. It does include justification, the part that we emphasize all the time. But there's more than just justification in salvation. There's filling with the Holy Spirit. There's sanctification by the Holy Spirit. There's glorification of our bodies when we get uh, the redemption of our bodies, when we're raised again from dead. Or even when we die and go to heaven, I guess you're glorified then, too, before you get the redemption of your body. And then the final step, I guess, would be the redemption of your bodies. All of that is involved in salvation, and all of that comes through faith, by grace through faith. And all of that makes it hard for me to believe in the typical Reformed view of sanctification, which states that we work to receive salvation. We've got to work. We've got to strive. Quoting Paul in a few places where he urges us to, to work and to strive, but of course when Paul does that, he immediately says, but nevertheless not I, but Christ who lives in me. The idea the Reformers have is, well, we couldn't work to get justified because we didn't have the Holy Spirit in us, but after we are saved, we have the Holy Spirit so he can help us do it. And I, have, I don't have a problem with that. That's fine. Yeah, the, we, do need, we don't need to be passive, as the Reformers allege, that non-Reformers believe. We don't have to be passive. 
the Keswick people, they don't like the Keswick people, Hudson Taylor and people like that, Amy Carmichael, who believed in the Keswick movement. The Reformers don't like that theology, you know, that evangelized all of China. But at any rate, we have been saved through, we have been saved. The whole process is through faith. The emphasis is on the whole process of salvation is through faith, belief in Jesus. Jesus does the work, we just believe in Jesus. Now, what is the difference between grace and faith here? For by grace you have been saved through faith. I always get those prepositions mixed up, and you have to really think about those prepositions. By grace, that's the active agent in your salvation. That's what saves you is God's grace. Through faith means that you have just opened up yourself to the grace operating in your life. That's the agency of your salvation, if you will. The principal movement of your salvation is by grace. The The analogy I like to use you can imagine a water trough filled with flowing water coming down off the side of a mountain saying it's watering the cattle down there. The water is the grace. Now, the water's not going to get to the cattle unless there's a trough to carry the water. That's faith. But the living water is the grace. Now, if we're not careful, we can make our faith trump God's grace. But even our faith, even our belief in God is a result of grace. It's, the faith is called the gift of God in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, that faith not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Faith is not even of yourselves. God's got to give you faith before you can respond to God's grace. Now, Armenians, God bless their erroneous souls, say that the, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. They say that it there is, is the grace that's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And therefore, the faith is of ourselves. Well, that can't be, and the reason is is because if you got an it, that's a pronoun, you need to look at the what the pronoun refers to, the referent of the pronoun. You look back at the nearest nouns, relevant nouns, and you got two of them, grace and faith. This is in the Greek as well as in the English. Well, which one of them is closer to it? Don't you normally take the noun that's closer to the pronoun in order to in, in order to give meaning to the pronoun? Faith is closer to the it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. The faith is the gift of God. The it's closer. That's one argument. The other argument is, if it refers to grace, then you'd be saying this. For by grace you have been saved. Grace is the grace of God. For by a gift you have been saved. The gift is the gift of God. For for by a gift you have been saved. A gift is the gift of God. It's repetitive. It's redundant. Paul wouldn't be redundant. It's talking about faith is the great, is the gift of God. Some people say, well, the it refers to salvation. For grace by you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It, i.e. salvation, is the gift of God. The problem is the saved is a verb. It's not a noun. So it's kind of an abstract idea that the it is referring to rather than a concrete noun, faith. So that's not going to fly either, in my humble opinion. It's our faith is the gift of God. And your faith is not a result of works, so that you may boast. The faith that you have in God does not become as a result of what you have done, especially in the matter of keeping the law, so that no one may boast. Why would somebody boast? I did this. That's why God saved me. You can forget that. Anybody that says that is completely and utterly unscriptural. Now, let's look. You know, I just said the Arminians believe that it's grace that is the gift of God, and the, and, the, and therefore faith is not as is of ourselves that's really not fair it's both Armenians and the Calvinist view and when I say Armenians I include Wesleyans too as a branch of Armenianism both believe that faith is a gift both of them believe that the difference is is the time that the faith is exercised Calvinists say the faith is exercised after regeneration and Armenians 
and the Wesleyans say that faith is exercised before regeneration. And if you say that the faith is exercised before regeneration, then in effect you're saying that the faith is of yourself, not of God. And so that's why it doesn't seem to match what Paul says here in verse 8. But I think in order to be precisely fair, an Arminian would say, no, no, faith comes from God just like grace comes from God. It's just that the faith comes before we get generated. Faith precedes regeneration, whereas the Calvinist and the Augustinian says that faith comes after regeneration, after the Holy Spirit regenerates you. So here's a, here's a Wesleyan view for Adam Clark, just so I can show you how this works here. Quote, is not faith the gift of God? Yes. Well, Calvinists would agree with him there. Yes, as to the grace by which it is produced. But the grace or power to believe and the act of believing are two different things. In other words, grace and faith are two different things. Hey, well, the Calvinists would agree with that. Going on, Clark says this, Without the grace or power to believe, no man ever did or can believe. But with that power, the act of faith is a man's own. So see you there? So you say, he says, he says, the faith is a man's own. It, it belongs to man. But Paul says, faith is not of yourselves. But Adam Clark says, faith is not. Faith is a man's own. Paul says, faith is not of yourself. Adam Clark says, faith is a man's own, which seems to me that is a blatant contradiction from the Scripture. God never believes for any man. Well, actually, Calvinists don't believe that God believes for any man. Man believes after God, after God regenerates him. So Calvinists would agree with Clark there. God never believes for any man no more than he repents for him. The penitent, through this grace enabling him, believes for himself. Nor does he believe necessary or impulsively when he has that power. The power to believe may be present long before it is exercised. In other words, before you get saved, you have the power to believe, even though you're dead in your transgressions and sins. Mr. Clark, or Dr. Clark, how do you explain that? The power to believe may be present long before it is exercised. Else, while the solemn warnings with which we meet everywhere in the word of God and threatens against those who do not believe. Is not this a proof that such persons have the power but do not use it? They believe not and therefore are not established. Well, that's looking at it from the human point of view. Sure, you can tell somebody, hey, you ought not to rob that bank. You ought not to lust after women and that kind of thing. But that doesn't mean they've got to. It is only when the Holy Spirit comes and gets them born again that they're able to respond to such threatenings. They believe not and therefore are not established, Clark continues. The, this, therefore, is the true state of the case. God gives the power Man uses the power thus given and brings glory to God. Without the power, no man can believe. With it, any man can. Well, again, Calvinists would agree with that. You can't use the power to believe. God And God gives you the power to believe. The question is, is when does he give it to you? Does he give you the power to believe when you're born or when you are born again? When you're a little baby in your mama's womb or you've grown up to where you're conscious? Or does it happen after you get born again and believe in Christ? Well, actually, that's the Arminian position. And Wesley sort of took an intermediate position. He said, no, you don't have the power to believe when you're born again. Only after the cross, when Jesus died, then he, he, that gave, that act of death on the cross gave all of mankind the power to believe. And that's the so-called doctrine of prevenient grace. Well, that's not true, I don't think, in my humble opinion. Of course, I am in the minority, most Christians. Most Christians are Armenians when they get born again because they just think, well, I believed it was, it was my choice. It was only when they study the scripture that they say, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. Oops, now I'm a Calvinist. If they study the scripture long enough, they will. There's some holdouts, of course, but there are some theological Armenians out there. Roger Olson, I think, is one. He's probably the best if you want to read good Armenian stuff that's fairly balanced, but 
Most of the time, the average Christian who is not theologically oriented will believe that his faith came from his own choice, not with God working on him first. We are saved by grace, not through works, lest any man should both works salvation is con- constantly condemned in Scripture. Here's an example, Romans 3.20. Because by the works of the law, and again, works is often, it often means works of the law. You do work in order to keep the law. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, law doesn't do justification. That's not its job. Law's job is to make you know that you're a sinner so that you need the Spirit to get you born again. Romans 3:28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, of course, we're not saved by works, but it goes without saying. Or maybe I should say it works as a fruit of our salvation, a good and necessary, but not works as the root of our salvation. We are justified by faith alone, but we are not justified by faith that is alone, because following on our faith comes our good works, and there needs to be lots of those. That no man should boast, a Christian should be very humble, that he got saved, that he's in the elect. You know, mankind loves to boast about what he can do. I walk around a college campus and look at all those dorms on a college campus. Every one of them has got the name of some rich donor up there because they want to boast about all the good that they've done. Go drive down the highway and look at the, at the names of the bridges on the highway. Samuel M. Smith Memorial Highway. People love to boast about the good works. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. What's the for there for? Because we are saved by grace through faith, in verses 8 and 9, because we are saved by grace through faith, verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We are his workmanship, his workmanship. Christ made us a sanctified Christian, not us. The verse does not say we are our workmanship, working together to create good works and a good person and a good good little Christian boy or girl. No. The NIV Study Bible points out the word workmanship has the sense of a work of art. That means Christians are a work of art. We are God's art. He, he draws us on the canvas, folks. He, he shapes us with the, with the sculptor's chisel and makes us into something beautiful. He does that in Christ Jesus. Again, translate that as in union with. In union with Christ Jesus is how he creates his work of art. In union with. If you're in water, you're completely surrounded by it. If you're completely surrounded by Christ then you are shaped like Christ. Here's what Jameson Fawcett Brown talks, says about that in union with Christ idea. And of course, the, the in, it can be translated as in union with, in union with Christ, but the, tra- the translations never do that. But this is what Jameson Fawcett says about the phrase in Christ. Quote, implies the paramount importance of the truth that it is in him and by virtue of union to him. Notice how... Jameson Fawcett and Brown equates in him and union to him because they mean the same thing. The second Adam, the restorer ordained for us from everlasting, the head of redeemed humanity, believers all have their blessings. Right, it's in union with him. Here's a good quote from Gill talking about that we are created for Christ Jesus for good works. I don't need to mention that we are his workmanship. Why are we created? For good works. Yeah, the purpose of our salvation is that we would go out into the world and do good works. Nothing wrong with good works. It's just that you're not saved. Paul balances out. He makes it very clear. The distinction between works for salvation and works that flow from our salvation. He said, he said, God prepared whatever work he has for your life. He's prepared beforehand. That means before the world was even founded. He said, here's some works for you, John Doe, to go out and do. I want you to walk in them. I want you to live in those good works. 
Let's read a quote from John Gill concerning that. The work of grace is a creation, or a creature, a new creature, not a new vamp of old Adam's principles. I don't know what that old English word vamp means, but it sounds cool. Not a new vamp, maybe not a new version, maybe of old Adam's principles, but an infusion of new ones, and is a work of almighty power, and such who have it wrought in them are said to be created in Christ. Because as soon as a man becomes a new creature, he is openly and visibly in Christ. And by these new principles of grace which are created in him, he is fit and ready and in a capacity to perform good works. And I emphasize that phrase there. After he's saved, he is in a capacity to perform good works. The new man formed in him is formed for righteousness and true holiness. The internal principle of grace both excites unto and qualifies for and qualifies for the performance of righteous and holy actions. Who could say it better than John Gill? That before the foundation of the world, we were, which got the good works were prepared before the foundation of the world. This idea beforehand is also mentioned in context with the with predestination. Ephesians one four, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoptions as sons. So we were predestined to be holy. We were predestined to be adopted as sons. Ephesians 1.11 and 12, and also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, so we were predestined to have an inheritance. Predestined to holiness, predestined to adoption as sons, to be in the family of God, and predestined to have the surpassing riches of the grace of God as an inheritance. And here in this verse, we are also predestined for good works, to walk in them. So find your good works and walk in those good works. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm now finished with Ephesians 1 through 10. In chapter 2, the end of chapter 2 from verse 11 to 23, the last half, we will talk more about predestination. And Paul talks about all the glorious things that we have in the victorious reign of Jesus as head over all things to the church. We'll take that up in the next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 